Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, by way of announcement and perhaps a bit of an explanation here, we do have uh, the fast of the seventh, or excuse me, the fast of the fifth month coming up uh, on Friday of this week, Friday the twelfth. This coming Friday. Uh, let's go back for a moment to Zechariah seven. I want to make a few comments about this. Uh, we've been now for several years keeping the four fasts mentioned in Zechariah 8. Uh, but here in chapter 7, <coughs> and to preface that, realize that Zechariah is very, very much an end-time book. It starts out with warnings about uh, not persecuting the prophets, it talks about the two witnesses and the gathering of the church, as does Haggai. And <coughs> even in chapter 6 here, it talks about how all these things will come to pass if we diligently obey God. So it's very much an end time that we're talking about here. Uh, this chapter, or this book culminating in Christ's return to the Mount of Olives and His reign from Jerusalem. So, very, very much, Zechariah is in time all the way through. Uh, these fasts had been relegated to ancient uh, occurrences, and the church paid no attention to them over the decades that the end-time church has been here, or before it disappeared, <laughs> as is the case today. So, why is the idea of fast mentioned here. Now, Zechariah uh, was told to speak to the priests in verse 3 of chapter 7, which were in the house of the Lord of hosts, and to the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as I have done these so many years? Now, this is the fifth month of this year, and uh, the time of that fast is only a few days ahead of us here. Now, I find it interesting in going over this that he doesn't mention all four of the fasts that are mentioned in chapter 8. He only mentions two here. Let's see that. Uh, so he, he asks the question, should I keep the fast of the fifth month? Verse 4, Then came the word of the Eternal of hosts to me, saying, Speak to all the people of the land and to the priests, saying, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, even those seventy years, did you at all fast to me, even to me? Now that sounds very much like Isaiah 58, where God said that the attitude of fasting was not correct, and it was done more for selfish personal reasons, rather than to draw near to God. So it's a little different context there, but it also has application to the end-time church because it also talks about those who will be heal, uh, repairs of the breach and be part of the healing that is about to come. So it's speaking of this same period of time when it mentions that. And here in Zechariah, he mentions the fifth and the seventh month. Why those two, and why did he leave out the fast of the fourth month and the tenth month? Now, here's a thought on that, based on where we are right now in terms of history and prophecy. Uh, we 
all of us here pretty much witnessed the destruction of the spiritual temple of the end time and even of the physical house of God that uh, was created by Herbert Armstrong and our tithes and offerings and so on being turned over to the Gentiles and no longer there. We also witnessed the death of our physical leader. Uh, The fast of the fifth month represents the sacking and burning of the temple. That's the one coming up Friday. And the one of the seventh month, two days after Feast of Trumpets, was about the death of Gedaliah, whom had been appointed as the leader of Judah when Nebuchadnezzar uh, took Judah captive. So those two we have witnessed again now. And we need to understand that these fasts cover a long panorama of history. All of the physical temples that have been built by God's people uh, under God's direction have been destroyed. Solomon's temple was ruined and gone. Uh, Then Ezra and Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua built back the temple, and it was essentially destroyed. Herod restored it to some degree, and that was the temple that was there when Christ was walking the earth. It too was destroyed. But spiritual Israel and spiritual Judah as temples of God have been destroyed over the years. The early New Testament church was about to be destroyed at the time that we're reading about in Peter as we've been going through this sermon series. The New Testament church lasted, the early one, about 70 years and it disappeared. Uh, Worldwide Church of God the end-time spiritual temple, the former one at least, lasted about 70 years, and now it is gone. Now we are awaiting the building of the latter temple, uh, which will be under the direction and leadership of the two witnesses, with the remnant of the church coming together here very shortly. (coughs) So that one is being awaited, even as we sit among the destruction of the spiritual temple here at the end, knowing that there is one more incarnation of it before this age ends, and Christ returns. Also at the time Peter was writing, Christ, as the uh, example of a physical temple in his body, was also killed, as were the apostles some years later. So there is martyrdom coming again here at the end, and the temple has been destroyed. So here we sit, uh, looking around, seeing that what we thought at the time was permanent and would lead to the church being protected at the end, and it would never cease. Uh, People would go to a place of safety and be protected there until Christ returned. We did not see the Scriptures that indicated that the church would be destroyed again and then have to be rebuilt under the two witnesses, albeit much, much smaller. However, far more spiritually aware and more righteous uh, in those terms than that which had come before. And that is why I've preached so loudly and so longly that we we need to be different than we were in Worldwide. We need to have more faith more trust, more love than we had back then. 
<clears throat> we need to have more unity than we had then. We need to have more love one for another than we did back then. And in so doing, generate the kind of love toward God that we lacked at that time. So this is coming ahead of us, and that's the reason we are fasting. So it mentions the fifth and the seventh here in an end-time context in particular, because those are the two that you and I have dealt with. The destruction of the temple under Herbert Armstrong and also his death as they killed Gedaliah, who was the leader of the Jews at that time. So he goes on down, <coughs> and he gives us some instruction here. And we need to think about this as we fast come Friday. That's in verse 9. Thus speaks the Eternal of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment, not false judgment, not false witness, but true judgment, and show mercy and compassions every man to his brother. So we're at a time when brother is against brother. We're at a time, as Christ said in Matthew 24, that people would betray one another, even to the death is where it will ultimately come. Uh, so we're to show true judgment and mercy and compassion. We're not to oppress the widow or the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor. So we're to take care of each other as uh, best we can, especially considering those who do not have much. And let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. Now, there's an important statement at this juncture in the history of the Church of God here in the end time and of our own current history right here in this little group. Uh, this is happening all over the Church of God today and it has not uh, been strange to us either. Don't imagine evil against his brother in your heart. Evil imaginations are not to dwell in our heart and mind and emotions. Uh, but they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear. Now, God tells us to do these things. Now, we have people right now who are trying to oppress the widow and the stranger and the poor by taking over their land that God has given them. And they're imagining evils about all kinds of things. In other words, God says this, and I've read it over the years right here on this property, and yet you have people who've refused to hearken, and they've pulled away the shoulder, and they've stopped up their ears that they will not hear. They made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Eternal of hosts has sent in His Spirit by the former prophets, Therefore came a great wrath from the eternal of hosts. And we're about to see that unleashed again. Just a matter of time now. Therefore it came to pass, that is, he cried and they would not hear, so they cried and I would not hear, says the eternal of hosts. So these have been read. These have been refused. Now God is going to pour out his anger shortly. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations whom they knew not, uh, says in Jeremiah uh, 11, that they will be put to the famine and the sword. This is the tribulation it's talking about here. Now that's true of worldwide church of God, and it's true of those who will not follow what is being taught today from the scriptures. 
And God says he was jealous for Zion with a great jealousy and was jealous for her with a great fury in 8.1. And he says, I'll return to Zion. It's what he says there in Zechariah 2 as well. Uh, with a great jealousy and was jealous for her with great fury. So God is jealous for those who will be faithful and obedient and he will come with great fury against those who are not. So he says, I'm returned to Zion, will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem again. He said that in Zechariah 2. It'll be a city of truth. Uh, Haggai says he'll bring peace in this place. And there'll be old women and men, verse 4, for very age, with staff in hand, uh, dwelling in the streets of Jerusalem. So some of us old folks may get even older and be walking around with a cane, uh, but he says that we'll dwell in the streets of Jerusalem even yet. So this is coming soon. And the streets will be full of boys and girls playing. This is before the millennium. This is during the time of the two witnesses and the time of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Uh, he talks about a, this remnant of this people in verse five, in verse 6. In these days, these days that we're living in, uh, he says he'll save his people from the east and from the west and bring them and I'll be their God in truth and in righteousness, verse 8. Now, verse 9, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you that hear in those days these words by the mouth of the prophets, which were in the day that the foundation of the house of the Eternal of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. I do believe there's one who has laid a foundation for the temple. I believe he's... Uh, not acting on it right now, but will soon, and come out to build the temple. Because it says, your hands have started it, they will finish it. For before these days there were, was no hire for man, nor any hire for beast, uh, neither was there any peace to him that went out or came in because of the affliction. For I said all men, every one, against his neighbor. We have even here. Uh, one house and another house and neighbor against neighbor from house to house. But he will be to the residue as of this people as in the former days. Uh, verse 12, The seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give her fruit, and the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. So we had better be faithful and true and heed what he told us to do back there at the beginning of the, ch of the chapter. And it shall come to pass, verse 13, that as you were a curse among the heathen, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. Now he tells that at, us that in Zechariah, I mean in Zephaniah, and in Malachi, Malachi in Haggai, to be strong, to fear not, to work, and to be of good courage. Those four things are repeated several times, and the fear not and be strong is repeated here. So it's talking about the same period of time again here in Zechariah. Christ doesn't return now till the 14th chapter. This is all before that. Verse 15, So again have I thought in these days to do well unto Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, fear you not. So God says, In spite of all the trouble, I still have in mind to bless you. Then he repeats. Now he gave us some warnings that we read back here in verses uh, 11 and 12 of chapter 7. Now he 
says here some things you are to do in chapter 8. So let's listen up and let's consider these come Friday. You want something to think about, pray about? Come Friday during the fast of the fifth month about the temple that has been destroyed and needs to be rebuilt. Here's the things you shall do. Speak you every man the truth to his neighbor. Not lies, not evil imaginations, not falseness, but truth. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. So we're to seek truth and peace. Now here's some things not to do. And let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor. That's a decided no-no right now. And love no false oath. People declaring, swearing, saying, affirming that such and such has happened or will happen. No, those lies are not to be thought and they're not to be told. For all these are things that I hate, says the Eternal. Somebody even said that seven, or a lot of what they believe around here is supposition. It's just stuff that's been dreamed up or thought of or imagined. Well, God says don't do that. He says He hates that. Well, if God hates something, it isn't going to last long. You better either repent of it, get over it, or you're going to face God. And the word of the Eternal of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, and here he names all four four of them, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah joy and gladness, cheerful feasts, therefore love the truth and peace. So we're to be keeping these, and he says that they will turn from hoping and lamenting over past destruction and current destruction, and they'll be turned into feasts of love and rejoicing since God is going to rebuild and redo under the two witnesses, and that temple will never be torn down. That one will also build the temple in Jerusalem. They will rebuild Jerusalem. Then the abomination will be set up, and it will be defiled, though not destroyed, The spiritual temple, the people that that qualify, will be taken to Zion and be in a place of refuge for three and a half years until Christ returns and the change come. So these feasts are going to become joyful. Now when God turns us around and these blessings start coming over these next few years, we're going to stop fasting on these days. We're going to start feasting on them because the promises that God has made to us here will come to pass. So, I hope this is the last time I tell you to fast on the fast of the fifth month. Now, I'm not saying it will be, but I hope that's the case. I hope by this time next year, things will have turned around and we can keep it as a feast. But for right now, we're still at a time where God is considering uh, moving in and dwelling with us and taking care of us And we are still under great duress and trouble right now. So we will fast this year. And then we will see what God does next year and the year after. So these are very, very important feasts. And we need to consider the things God told us in both chapter 7 and and chapter 8 about what we are to do and what we are not to do. uh, Because that is at the very basis 
of the trouble, and it's at the very basis of the answers to the problems that we are now facing. So that turned into a long announcement, uh, but I'll make it part of the tape because I think it's important that it be considered. Uh, so let's. So that was the sermonette, I guess, uh, or split sermon. <laughs> I guess I'm halfway through, aren't I? Nearly. Uh, let's go back to First Peter then, uh, and see if I, we, I know we can finish chapter five. I was going to go on into chapter two. I mean, Second uh, Peter two, but uh, with this coming up, and I think it's very important to consider these fasts. Uh, I wanted to take some time for that. So, let's go on to First Peter five then. He has just said that if the righteous scarcely uh, be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? And that's essentially what we're talking about there in uh, in Zechariah in Zechariah seven and eight about those who will love truth and peace and those who have false oaths and lying uh, false witness. So in chapter 5, he says then he does uh, actually some administrative thoughts here toward the end of this book. He's been talking about our attitudes and our spiritual well-being and what we ought to be doing and how we do it. Then he gives some pastoral or administrative instruction here, which also fits in very well with what he's also already been saying about our thinking and our conduct. So he says, "...the elders which are among you I exhort." So, he was writing as an evangelist, or no, here, I'm thinking of Timothy. Uh, This is Peter, one of the apostles, and there were elders throughout the churches that he was writing to. So, the elders which are among you, I exhort, I am also an elder. He was by office an apostle, but all the offices of the ministry are called elders. It's just that there's designation uh, in a hierarchical line from evangelists, I mean from... uh, Apostle to evangelist to prophet and uh, pastors and on down, teachers and so on. So he was an apostle and was writing to the elders there, whether they were uh, of local elder rank or higher rank, the pastors and everyone uh, is a a group of elders. Uh, An elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So he is here reiterating to them that he was an eyewitness to what happened to Christ and that they need to consider very strongly and very heavily what he has to say as a result. He has an authority here that was conferred on him by Christ and also the eyewitness uh, account on top of that. So he's a, he was a witness and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. So Christ had explained to him the mystery of the ages and that we are to become God. So he then gives them some specific instruction. Feed the flock of God which is among you. So the ministry here is rejoined that they are to be busy feeding the flock. Well, what does the flock need to be fed? The Word of God. It doesn't need to be the Word of philosophers. It doesn't need to be the Word of Politics. It doesn't need to be the word of whatever you might dream up uh, or of secular history or a lot of the things that ministers have gotten into. But they need to be fed 
the truth, the Bible, God's Word. Didn't Christ admonish Peter? And he's saying it here himself three times. Feed my lambs, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And that made a very strong impression on him, obviously, when he was told three times in a row, when you're converted, take care of the flock. So he is telling the ministry here what he had learned directly from Christ. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. Now, they were to be in charge. They were to take oversight. When you oversee something or are foreman of it, uh, you take charge and you uh, guide, you direct whatever crew it is or whatever business arrangement or church arrangement there is. Oversight means someone who is in charge. There are people who don't like that and will fight that, but it's all through the Bible. Sorry about that, those of you who want to be we the people and rule yourselves in a democracy. Uh, Exodus 23.2 says that a multitude shall do nothing. Uh, he says, when I appoint someone to prepare a place there in the same chapter, Exodus 23.17 and 18, uh, you are to listen and beware and not disagree, or you will not be forgiven. So, uh, God did give oversight in the church, always has. So, those of you who are elders there, it's your job to be feeding, to be taking care of, and guiding and leading, not by constraint, but willingly. So, to have the kind of mind that's not doing this because you're told to, but you're doing it willingly because you love the people and you want them taken care of. You want to be sure they do things right so they can be blessed by God. Isn't that what we all want? To be blessed by God? Well, I'll tell you, we need to be uh, zeroing in on the things that we need to do to please God. Because that's what we're here for. So, not by constraint, but willingly. Not for money, but of a ready mind. Always ready to help, to give, to advise, to counsel, to help people understand what they need to do in order to please God. Because we are in a church overall that was destroyed, uh, puked out, because we did not please God. And we need to be sure that we change our conduct and our approach and our mentality so that we can please Him this time and to be of a ready mind to do so. Neither is being lords over God's heritage. So He said, you have been put in charge. You've been given the oversight. Now you need to do it carefully, uh, not lording it over them, but being examples to the flock. So the ministry is constrained to obey God, to serve Him uh, as best they possibly can, to be good examples for the flock, and not just use the power that has been given to lord it over people, but to set an example and to kindly and gently guide and lead them as best as possible. Uh, but there is time for power as well. Uh, doesn't the Scripture say, if some have compassion making a difference, others jerk out of the fire. Uh, so, 
sometimes stronger methods are needed, but overall, I mean, that power is there when it is needed, let's say that. But not to, through pride, ego, and vanity, uh, make life, people's lives miserable by telling them everything they're supposed to be doing and, and, and uh, criticizing constantly people. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall be, receive a crown of glory that fades not. So Christ is the chief shepherd. He's in charge, and he did it willingly. He set the example. He came of a ready mind, and not for money or wealth or gain or anything else. He was willing to sacrifice himself for all of us. Now, Satan is carnal and human, not human, but inhuman, <laughs> But humans share a lot of his attributes, or their own attributes, a lot of his uh, attitudes, let's say. And what did Christ get tempted with by Satan? By rulership, by uh, wealth, uh, by ruling the whole world. Satan couldn't offer him the universe because he didn't rule it, but he was at that time ruling the earth and still is until Christ intervenes. So, he's the chief shepherd, and he was gentle and kind and, and uh, helpful. Doesn't mean he wasn't strong when he needed to be. When he ran the Pharisees and Sadducees off here and there, or ran the money changers out of the temple, it was with great power. Uh, but generally, he came here to be humble, to be meek, to serve, to give, and to give himself of himself while he lived, and himself when he died. So he says, if you'll have the same attitude that Christ had, you'll receive a crown of glory that fades not away. Now, we saw a lot of abuse of these things in Worldwide Church of God, just as Peter was seeing it among the churches and the ministers there. Uh, there were ministers who tried to tell people what kind of car they ought to buy and what color it ought to be and what kind of... Uh, plates and dishes and silverware they ought to use and uh, went in their houses and looked in their cupboards to see what they were eating and there were all kinds of abuses and overlord things that went on and God didn't like that so uh, it's not, it wasn't back just in Peter's day it's been in this day as well verse 5 likewise you younger submit yourselves to the elder so there's office, and there's power, and uh, oversight, and guidance, and there's rule. Just as Paul said, obey them that have the rule over you there in Hebrews. But apart from that, uh, we are to give um, respect to those who are physically older than us, uh, simply because they have lived longer. They may have learned more lessons. Uh, they have a certain status by dent of age that we should confer on older people. Uh, our society tends to shunt them away once they've reached their uh, time of their years where they can't contribute as much physically, perhaps, to the society. And uh, we'll shunt them off to old people's homes or nursing homes or wherever uh, and throw them in a wheelchair and push them in a corner. Uh, 
and perhaps there's a time when that can't be avoided, uh, I understand, but uh, that isn't the way it used to be done. It used to be that when families lived together and they weren't separated by thousands of miles away set families are now, that uh, as we grew older, the next generation and the generation after that would take care of the elderly in the family until they died. So they had a place to live and people to take care of them. But now that we have people running to and fro across the face of the earth and our kids are living sometimes thousands of miles from us, you know, it, it, the society is totally different than when nearly all of us in this room were children. Uh, my own example, uh, both grandparents lived within, well, not more than, well, one was a quarter mile away, and the other set of grandparents were no more than a mile and a half, if that, away from us. Uh, all, nearly all the kids, eight in one family and seven of the other, lived either in town or only a hundred or two or three hundred miles away. And uh, I had cousins around that I grew up with and played with. And we had family get-togethers and sometimes there were dozens of people there because they were close enough to come. Uh, and the elderly were taken care of by the kids and the grandkids. Uh, that's the way... God intended life to be when you had an agricultural society, which we're going to have again in the millennium, is that they are taken care of and shown respect and looked up to. I looked up to my great-grandmother. She was around, I don't know how old I was when she died, but she'd come out west in a covered wagon and had Indians visit and Pancho Villa visit her and all kinds of stuff that she'd gone through living out in the desert of Arizona down just north of Phoenix before Phoenix was Phoenix. <laughs> wasn't much out there then, but them in Happy Valley. Uh, but she had all those stories and I used to sit around and just hope she'd tell me all those stories of the past because I, I had a, I don't know, just as a kid a certain respect for what she had been through and a, an excitement and interest in it. And that's the way it should be. That's what he's talking about here, really, is the structure in society which we have seen just disappear. Uh, it, it, for the most part, just isn't there anymore. There are a few pockets here and there across our country where families are still together, but it's pretty, pretty few and far between. So we're in a totally different societal setup. And what he's saying here is, is hard for us to comprehend, uh, especially if we were younger and never saw the things that all of you saw that I was just describing in my life. Uh, you saw them. You knew it. You were part of it. So he says, show respect to the older. Yes, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Now, that's the reason I always, and I did it way back in Worldwide when we had potlucks or so on, I'd say, kids eat last. The elderly go through first. Uh, let's show respect for the age that is there. Now, parents didn't particularly like that always. Well, the kids are hungry. Let the kids go through first. 
let the kids all crowd to the front of the line. Now, I remember how it used to be in Big Sandy when they were serving all three meals there. Once they'd built the field house, they served all three meals in the old Redwood building. And we would sit on the edges of our chairs just waiting for that final prayer to say amen. And we would rush down the hill and across the draw and up to the Redwood building and there'd be a long line of kids there waiting to go through first. And some of us were even better off than that because we volunteered to help serve. And uh, we, we got all kind of benefits being behind the food line. So, and it was utter selfishness. I don't think it was as much a matter of attitudes and willingness to serve as it was I want to be first in the chow line. So we'd help with breakfast, lunch, and dinner, a lot of us. Now, when they were digging ditches out or repairing the water or or the sewer, I don't remember being in line for that. (laughs) You know, so it wasn't all a matter of service. I think there's a lot of selfishness involved. But that came to mind later, you know, as we'd see elderly people uh, have trouble getting out of the building and into a car and get down there and get parked and finally get in and they'd be at the tail of the line. And uh, I, I thought there was a lot of disrespect among me and my friends and all of us young ones by crowding in front and running over people getting to the front of the line. So uh, we always have made it where the elders go through first and the children can learn to wait. And it's good for them to learn patience. It's good for them to learn a certain respect for the elders. And... Uh, That's just a very small example of what he's talking about here. But we need to give, what does God say, to the hoary head, to the white hair, uh, respect and honor to that in another place. So there are quite a few scriptures that allude to this. And isn't God the Father himself, the Ancient of Days, and the one to be respected and admired and worshipped above all? His hair is white like wool, as is his son's. God doesn't let us have white hair right off the bat, does He? We have to wait years and years to get white hair. Well, the Father and the Son have white hair. Uh, They are to be the most respected, the most uh, adored, the most worshipped of any and everything. So, uh, having hair that is white is a status symbol in God's world. The Father and the Son, and even in our human realm here, once we get old enough to have white hair, uh, then that is a symbol of having lived a life, having overcome, of having grown, of having learned, and to be respected. So let's be sure we're not like the world who wants to just shuttle the elderly aside. But let's give respect where respect is due and where it is required of us from God. Yes, all of you be subject one to another, end of verse 5, and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So it doesn't matter, he says. Yes, there is an order in which we need to understand that age has uh, its respect. 
And yet he tells us then all to respect one another, regardless of physical age or whatever. And here he begins to discuss spiritual maturity. That as we mature spiritually, not just physically, uh, God hates pride. And we're to be clothed with humility, dressed with it. So that when somebody encounters us, uh, they're going to see somebody that, that uh, emanates humility and meekness. Not pride, not vanity, not ego, not self, but willingness to serve, to love, to give, to help, uh, to make way for others. God resists the proud. I don't. Do you want to be resisted? No, we don't. We want God to be happy with us, to be pleased with us, not to resist us. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. So we are not to try to set ourselves above others in our attitude and our approach, uh, thinking that we're smarter or better or more wealthy or more this or more that, more educated, whatever, uh, than others. And sometimes those things are used. I heard somebody mutter one time, well, who are these poor people that think they can hobnob with the wealthy? That was said by a minister in the Church of God who was apparently a pretty wealthy man apart from his salary in the church. But he looked down on someone who was poor. That's just one small example. But there are many, many ways we can draw ourselves up and we think our ancestors are better and therefore we are or we're wealthier or we're smarter or more educated or whatever or more spiritual there are a lot of things that can be vanity and that's one of the worst is self-righteousness where we think we're more righteous than someone or put ourselves above them in our estimation <clears throat> so it is through condemning and putting down others that we think that we're better off spiritually than they are now, God doesn't care for that. He says, I will exalt the humble and the meek. So let's wait for His exalting and not exalt ourselves. Verse 7, Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. That's a verse that I run through in my mind pretty often. I don't know that I had it necessarily memorized as to where it is, First Peter 5, 7. But it's a thought that comes pretty often. Casting all your care on Him. (coughs) He cares for you. Now, sometimes people will care. They'll care to a certain point, and then they may not care. (laughs) But God cares about everything in your life. He cares about the number of hairs you have on your head. He cares about every emotion. He cares about everything in your life. And therefore, any problem, any difficulty that you may have, you can take to Him and know that He cares. That's a very, very powerful statement there. That there's at least one place you can go where you know they care. And then, some more instruction here in verse 8. Be sober. Be uh, not necessarily physically sober in terms of alcohol, but this is 
be of a serious mind is what he's referring to here. Uh, of course, that could include <laughs> the strong drink or alcohol. Uh, because if you're really truly serious-minded, you're not going to drown yourself in drugs or alcohol or certain things where you can try to escape life. Now, you may use alcohol sometimes to deal with life, and he does say that back in Proverbs 31. Uh, But you should not live a life of drunkenness. But be serious-minded. He's... These are serious times, and our eternal life is at stake. We will either live forever in the kingdom of God, or we'll go into the the Gehenna fire. And that time is getting close for young and old. Be vigilant. If you're given guard duty, if you sleep on the job, uh, that's not good. And it can cause all kinds of problems. But we are to be vigilant. We are put on this earth to guard against Satan. We're here as guards of the truth. We're here to be guards of our own mind and emotion and what is allowed in our heads. And we need to be vigilant about that. There is so much stuff in our world today that can impact us and affect our thinking and our emotions that is simply just wrong. And we're not to partake in those things. You have to be very, very careful in any movies you watch, or any music you listen to, or any games you play, uh, you have to be very, very careful that your mind is not bombarded by Satan's selfishness, by his demonism, by death and destruction, uh, violence, because we're in a world that is beset with and... uh, What's the word I'm looking for? It's on violence. Everywhere you look, you see violent stuff being produced for people to watch as entertainment. No, Satan is the killer. He's the accuser. He's the violent one. And when we obsess ourselves with violence, and whether it be computer games or movies or whatever, uh, that is contrary to God, who likes peace, not anger, not hostility, not murder, not killing. How can people play those games and go to those things and then try to say, I'm trying to be like God? No, that's not like God is. That's like Satan is. Be vigilant. Be careful, he says. Guard your mind. Because, and here he says it, because your adversary, the devil, he is our adversary. He's trying to keep us out of the kingdom of God and to be destroyed forevermore. He hates us with a passion. He is as a roaring lion, walking about, seeking whom he may devour. So he's put all these things in front of us <coughs> to destroy godliness, to destroy righteousness, to destroy peace. He's put all kinds of things there to lead us to murder and hate and violence and that kind of feelings and emotions. That's the way it was before Noah's Ark sailed. It was violence and ungodliness continually. And we've reached that point again in this world. Now you can say, well, Daryl's got a vendetta against computer games. That's not the point. The point is, just as in the days of Noah, 
Satan has put out all kinds of negative impacts in various and sundry ways and placed them right before us to get us to, get us to be a part of them, <clears throat> to partake of it. And if we don't partake and do those things, we live them vicariously through games and movies and music and so on. Uh, so, he is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and he set these things up as traps and snares for us to walk into and be destroyed. Well, he is there. He's alive. He's not a figment of the imagination, nor are his demons. They're very much very live beings who do affect the air and the airwaves and what goes on on the face of this earth. There's very, very little godliness on the face of the earth today. And it is minimally in those who are trying to seek godliness because Satan's effect comes even on us who are seeking God's righteousness. And we have to be careful because it's all around us. <clears throat> Verse 9, Whom resist steadfast in the faith? Well, faith comes from what? comes from hearing the Word of God. So it's the Word of God that we need to be focusing on, not the Word of the world around us. That's the way you resist Satan, is being steadfast in the words of God, which build faith in God. Knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. What you see going on in the world around you, and the afflictions that people have, are the same afflictions to one degree or another that we will have, and we will face the same temptations and evil and wretchedness that they're facing. So we do have knowledge that helps us remain steadfast to God. They don't have that. They don't have that opportunity. They're just wallowing along, doing what they feel like they want to do. And they're headed for a very, very severe trouble in which over 90% of them are going to die in the next few years <clears throat> because of Satan's hate. Why do we have all these violent games? Why do we have all these violent movies? Because Satan is about to unleash violence on the world. And it's what is being done ahead of time to let us know what is coming. Not just in make-believe, but in the people we know, the people we love, and ourselves if we don't serve God and have His protection. <clears throat> but we do have something better. Verse 10. But the God of all grace, mercy, unmerited pardon, who has called us to His eternal glory by Christ Emmanuel, after that you have suffered a while, make you mature, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So God, who has all kindness, gentleness, pardon, grace, through Christ has given us an eternal, an opportunity, eternal glory. That we understand. And then he says, though, that after you have suffered a while, I find this one very encouraging as well, that the suffering that we're going through is part of the plan. 
life was not to be just peaches and cream. Life is to have suffering. Christ suffered. Didn't Peter earlier say that we suffer the same things that he suffered and that we will? Well, he says it here again. So we've been called to glory. We've been called to eternal life. But before that comes suffering, just like it did with Christ. Suffering can be minor. It can be great. All kinds of suffering. And we all suffer to one degree or another. Just being a human being is, is a, an insufferable situation. So after you've suffered a while, He will perfect us and establish us and strengthen us and settle us. So all we have to do is remain faithful and true and strong, humble and meek, seek the truth and peace, love our neighbors, and not have false imaginations and false oaths and, and evil thoughts. And after we've suffered, then He's going to take care of us and take care of us in grand uh, circumstances. So to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Or so be it. So He's, he's got us in mind he cares for us. Everything that we suffer, He knows about. He cares for us. And we can cast all our care on Him, and He knows that suffering is part of what we'll go through. So when we suffer, what do we do? We go to Christ who suffered more than anyone else, who has compassion and love and mercy on those who are now suffering as He suffered. Not as badly, but still suffering. And He knows how to have compassion and care for us. So he knows what we're going through. He set it up that way, did it to us on purpose, so that we might never, ever go back to this human way of thinking or satanic way of thinking that is what our minds are today apart from his spirit. To him who can deliver us from this body of sin and death, be glory and dominion forever and ever. So then he closes by saying, By Silvanus, whom we sent the letter by apparently, a faithful brother to you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. Don't be deceived. You do have the truth. Stick to the truth. Well, did that need to be said? He's writing to God's people. Well, should it have been said to people in 1985? and six, and 1990, and 1995, and since. You have the truth. Don't let anybody take it with you, away from you, and give you a new evangelism, like the Tkachas did. But so many thousands just allowed themselves to be pulled away, not only by them, but by others as well. This is the true grace of God that we stand in, brethren, and let's not ever depart from it. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, called, elected together, salutes you, and so does Marcus, my son. Greet you one another with a kiss of love. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Emmanuel. Amen. Well, <clears throat> since I had a split sermon, let's go ahead and stop there with that final thought today.